Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchank and Jack Smith. Today we would like to talk about three subjects. The politics of the Netherlands, including the departure of Franz Timmermans from the European Commission back to his home country. Normally you know, people move the other way around, but he chooses to do that direction. Then Margarete Vestager's problems after the withdrawal of Fiona Scott-Morton as, as her chief economist. And finally, the expiry of the grain deal after Russia refused to renew the agreement. Jack, let's start with Dutch politics. Now, there's been a lot of change. Uh, Rutte is gone or going. Uh, the finance minister, Ingrid Kark, she's also going. Franz Timmermans seems to be coming. So what's going on there? We kind of already know who's going and we're starting to figure out who's coming in. I think all, now all four of the coalition party leaders are stepping down. So the three big ones, of course, are um, Mark Rutte, who we all know is going. Um, Wapke Hoekstra from the CDA, who's foreign minister at the moment, is also stepping down. And then um, Sigurd Kog, obviously, who leads D66, is, uh, is stepping down too. The other big thing to have happened really this week was that the two largest center-left parties in the Netherlands They didn't merge completely, but they basically formed an electoral alliance. So they'll run on a joint list uh, ahead of the next elections. This has been a process that's been a little while in the making. They already ran on a joint list for provincial elections and for the Senate. And, and they kind of basically like worked together in the Senate as a faction. That's kind of another consequential development. Now, one thing that's also happened with the center left is that along with them joining into a single list. Basically, Franz Timmermans looks like he is coming back to the Netherlands to head up that joint list. He announced his candidacy on Thursday. And as of recording this, it's not been officially confirmed, but the leaders of both the Labour and the Green Left Party have been very enthusiastic about it. Nobody else has put themselves forward. It, it's pretty obvious that Timmermans is going to be doing that, which will mean that he will be stepping back from his role within the commission. Timmons is a heavy, a heavy hitter in the commission. That's probably the heaviest hitter. He, the, he is the heaviest hitter, in yes. The commission. Now, he is leaving this job to join Dutch politics. It's fine. But the, what I'm wondering is that the way Dutch politics looks, it's very unlikely that the left is going to win the election. So here is a guy who is commission vice president in, very, in a very serious position, ultimately choosing to become an opposition leader. What does this tell us about Dutch politics, but what does it also tell us about European politics? I mean, normally normally that wouldn't have happened even a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the situation that Timmermans would have been in in the EU, it does make a little bit more sense. I mean, the first thing is that I, I think pretty much all of the major green legislation is now out of the door at the moment, or at least even if it's not been kind of completely approved by all of the institutions, the commission has put forward its proposals and now it's with the council and the parliament. That's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, European elections are now in less than a year. I don't think it's particularly likely that Timmermans would have had another term as commissioner anyways, since he wouldn't have been part of the governing party. Now, he wasn't when he was renominated in 2019, but that was quite a different story. If the Dutch government shifts further to the right, even less likely that he's going to be renominated, especially with the domestic political implications of some of this climate legislation. And, and then he's already served two terms as commissioner too. So looking at it that way, saying, okay, well, Timmermans had less than a year realistically to go as commissioner. He'd already done most of what he thought he was going to do or said he was going to do in the first place. This was kind of an opportunity to get back in. From that standpoint, it makes sense. Okay. I mean, it's interesting. There's another sort of heavy hitter 
And the commission, I mean, the commission, it looks like the commission is really sort of bleeding at the moment. Timmermans is leaving. Margareta Vestager is mortally wounded by what happened this week with uh, Fiona uh, Scott Morton, the American economist who was appointed as chief economist of the director general, uh, general of uh, competition policy and then withdrew her candidacy after a whole of protests coming mainly from France, triggered by Emmanuel Macron's comments this week. She has indicated a preference to become head of the European Investment Bank, so she was also on her way out. There are two heavy hitters in the commission. You know, I would think the other heavy hitter in the commission is... Um, is Thierry Breton, the French industry commissioner, who's now sort of, whose power in the commission looks like rising from what is going on. I mean, the Fiona Scott Morton, I mean, we wrote about this uh, this week. I don't have strong views on whether European institutions should or should not hire non-EU nationals. You know? I mean, generally, I think I'm probably in favor of this because there are skills that we don't have in Europe. We have to be quite honest about this. I mean, when Vestager advertised the job of chief economist, she didn't get any qualified applications from EU economists. So there aren't that many EU sort of microeconomists, industrial economists that have an understanding of modern world. There are quite Fiona Scott Morton is about the best that you could do in that particular area. Absolutely. She understands the, the, the tech companies. Most European industrial economists basically understand chemical industry and car industry. And that, that's sort of their, their specialization. There isn't a lot of modern industrial economics. 21st century industrial economics. Scott Morton is one of the few. She's worked uh, for Amazon, for Apple. She was in the Obama administration in the antitrust department of the Justice Department. So she, you know, she had a wide range of experience, and she was uh, clearly the most qualified candidate. Now there is a question of reciprocity because it is true the French are right on that specific point. The Americans would not hire an EU national in any senior administration position. That hasn't happened and it's unlikely to happen. We've seen British nationals like in the in the State Department. So we do have Yeah, yeah. Although it's I mean it's different with um, it's, Fiona Hill, for instance, because she is she was an American national before she came into that role. I see she was she was a US national. Yeah, so. yeah. She 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 yeah. Became, she naturalized when she was in when she was in academia. I think that's that's I think what 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 I heard too. You they, 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 you can enter the administration, but you're, you're supposed to nationalize in, in the process. So you're not supposed to remain a, a national of a, foreign, of a foreign country. Yeah, I mean, for me, for me, the reciprocity argument doesn't really hold water because I don't see the point of making a big deal of these things outside of actual like formal bilateral agreements where reciprocity does matter. I mean, if it was a matter of, say, the U.S. enacting certain visa rules for EU nationals or certain restrictions on working in the U.S., that were related to visa statuses, then reciprocity, that's completely fair as an issue because that comes into mobility, which is an area for bilateral diplomatic agreements between countries. In terms of who you hire, I think you should be making that decision based on, okay, what's the kind of skill set that we need? And what are the potential conflict of interest and security implications of hiring non-EU nationals? Those would be the two main considerations. And I, I don't have particularly strong views on this. I, I also think that in the EU, they're slightly overregging the, I guess, security or geostrategic implications of this. But you can definitely argue that validly. I, I think one thing that putting Scott Morton in that position would have done is moved things a little bit closer to where the US is on competition policy, because she and some of the other people who've come out of Yale are very much within the paradigm of the current administration, right? So Fiona Scott Morton's time at Yale overlapped with that of Lena Khan, who is now the chair of the FTC and, and a very big hitter in competition policy within the current Biden administration. 
one of the downsides of this um, appointment or one of the, the, the difficulties she would have faced later on. It's more on the political level. Uh, even if she has all the expert knowledge, there is no doubt about it. But like with the French reshuffle this week, we, we've seen that politics trumps expertise, um, where the, the knowledge of the political landscape and to get things through seem to be more valued as an asset rather than the expertise as such. If, for example, she were to come up with um, proposals where there is no consensus in the council, you you would see that the council split uh, according to these political lines and that her US nationality been used against her later on in the process. We, we talk about these arguments and we look at the arguments as such and try to decipher wh- whether this is a relevant argument, yes or no. But uh, I think more on the motivational ground, I think the more fundamental issue is about politics over expertise. If, if you have Emmanuel Macron, he might actually use that also in his national context to say we stood up against uh, against you and pointing an US to the job. So that runs very well in French uh, public. No. Oh, yeah, it, play, it plays very well to the domestic audience. I, I mean, although it's also, I think, what the domestic audience would kind of also expect at a minimum as well, instead of particularly laud or applaud. And I think the other thing, too, is that there were kind of other member states that were a little bit hesitant, too, about her appointment. And they kind of hid behind France. Yeah, that's also, there's also the point that the, the point I think we made this in the, in the point in the news briefing, which is that I completely agree. This isn't ultimate about whether the EU or whether foreign national should work here or not. This is sort of the the pretext of the of the discussion. This is ultimately about the future direction of European uh, digital policy, because Thierry Breton is sort of leading a very restrictive uh, regulatory approach to to the digital agenda. You know, the Digital Market Act is coming into force this month, uh, next month, there's going to be an awful lot of change happening. And uh, the only sort of the most liberal part of European policy in this area has been competition policy. Now, Vestager was the sort of the, the standard bearer of liberal competition policies. And if she is sort of, uh, you know, she will soon be gone. But if her chief economist is a, an American person with expert knowledge of the digital industry, that might make it much more, much harder for the, the for the EU to uh, regulate that, that particular, to, to actually to come up with a regulatory regime that would be in Kiev Breton spirit. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, it depends. I think Suzanne's point about the patronage thing still holds, though. I think um, it would have been more difficult in practice for her to have influenced policy without a patron like Vestar in there as a non-EU national. Okay, that, that's probably true. And, and there's a lot of, to play for also for the next commission. It's not clear who's going to succeed. Van der Leyen as president, whether she succeeds herself, there's a possibility that she might be reappointed. It's often the case when, when, a, when there are no clear majorities, though it might not be that easy. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it might be a bit difficult given that the EPP is not really on her side with a lot of policies. There's a lot of stuff, backstabbing stuff going on. Uh, if Manfred Weber wants to become commission president, the last thing he needs is a German predecessor and a predecessor of, of the same party. So for him, the worst thing that could happen is uh, a second mandate for von der Leyen. So I think there's an awful lot of stuff behind the surface that's going on. That there is sort of a really bet- a battle royal currently playing out on green policies, on digital policies. These are sort of big political divides that have opened up in EU politics in the last few years now after the broad consensus in favor of the green agenda and all these things that is now gone and we are now basically these things have all become political and I think the 
the Fiona Scott Morton issues sort of got interwoven into that conflict. And I think she kind of naively, and Vestago kind of naively entered into this thing without knowing or without realizing what a kind of a, a snake pit the, <laughs> the European Commission is politically. And, uh, and without sort of seeing that this is a potentially explosive issue, not just a technical appointment. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure that Fiona Scott Morton, it's not going to be uh, too bad a loss. She can uh, go back to her uh, oh, sure. nice position at Yale and her lucrative consultancy opportunities. And uh, she, she might have she might have lost an opportunity to influence policy in the EU. But at the end of the day, she will have plenty more opportunities to influence policy in the United States as she's already done. No, the interesting question is what, what's going to happen to EU policy now? The starter couldn't get any qualified applications. I think the, the thing was open for like two or three months. And now she's going to go back to the drawing board and who's going to apply for this job and who's going to get it. The first chief economist for that job was Lars Hendrik Roller, who was later turned out, was Merkel's chief economist, economic advisor. He was a heavy hitter in that particular job. Uh, we were not so impressed with this macroeconomic advice he gave Angela Merkel during the Eurozone crisis. I've written extensively about this, but Roller was, a, was certainly a very competent competition economist. There aren't that many around. This is not a, this is not a massively large area of plentiful people, and there are very few Europeans who understand the digital industries because we don't have any digital industries of any note in the world. We're missing we're missing one digital trend after another. Uh, it's unsurprising in the debate. If I'm, I'm following I'm following this in Germany with with increasing incomprehension. The is ultimately still about industry, old industry. This is all about industrialization versus green policies. And the digitalization, the digital world, the artificial intelligence, all this the stuff that's happening, quantum computing, all the modern stuff is just completely off the agenda. And it's, uh, we're still having the same debates as the 1980s and 1990. So I'm, I'm really worried about the, the direction of European industrial and competition policies. This is of a Luddite tendency to <laughs> take. Yeah, off. yeah. And I, th- I, think, I think as well, this was a bit of a missed opportunity in a sense, because I think for the Americans and competition policy. One of the risks, I think, of, I don't want to stick my neck too much out here, but one of the risks of the approach that the Americans are kind of taking in this area is that the way that the legal and political system works means that a lot of the time you're basically relying on interpretations of older laws and older precedents to set new precedents. There are certain advantages to that. It gives you a bit more flexibility. Uh, The disadvantage of that is that it can be quite a chaotic process. I think we might start to see that a little bit more where the US government starts fighting with tech companies, fighting with the courts. There's not a huge amount of clarity over where the actual regulatory policy ends up. I think one advantage of the approach in the EU is that there's quite a bit more, I guess, certainty about what regulations you actually have to follow as a company. Obviously, the outcomes of court cases do affect you as a company as they do elsewhere, but I think not to quite the same degree as they do in the US. There, there was a bit of an opportunity here, I think, to say, okay, well, we're going to set a competition policy here that's more predictable than the path that the US is going on. And that is kind of an opportunity for companies. The question is not necessarily just more regulation or less regulation, but actually being able to know that the regulatory framework you need to stick to is the regulatory framework that will also be there in like five or 10 years time. This, in a sense, I think was a bit of a missed opportunity to say, look, we're going to really firm this up. And in contrast to the US, which could be a bit wild westy for a little bit, we will be able to say to you, this is what the regime will look like, and it's not going to change. Yeah, my, my fear about what's likely to happen is that the EU overregulates, and especially on data protection, the EU is relentless. And that companies, that hasn't happened yet, but that large sort of digital service providers will eventually conclude that the European market is not big enough or lucrative enough for them to, to shift their entire business models 
to comply with EU regulations, that they will shift out of the EU and then offer their services from an offshore place, which legally they can, because the the reason why EU regulation is binding on them is not because Europeans access their platforms. It's binding on them because they are themselves located in the EU through subsidiaries. Google, Apple, they all have their... Yeah, the European companies. That's the legal the legal hook through which the the EU can apply. Now, a, a hardware provider like like Apple will always Microsoft. They will always have their European representation. But a a pure platform provider like Twitter, like you know Facebook, for them the, the situation is less clear. They're they're selling advertising, but to sell advertising to European, you don't actually have to physically be in Europe. No, no, you don't. But it does get more complicated to sell that advertising without a, without a presence in Europe. And it does. I, I think big, this is why they're doing yeah. it. Absolutely, they're not. They're not. They're not stupid. The point is. The point I'm making is that there comes a point in the future when the, the I mean, it's a question for them of of the relative cost and benefit. Yeah, I think. I think though. Yeah, costs of when the costs of compliance exceed the advantages of having a, a, a physical presence. And that is a question where, you know, if you over-regulate and the EU's share of global GDP is 15% unfolding. And so the, the, the idea that, oh, we can't, we can't afford to miss the European market holds less today than it did 20 years ago, and it will hold less in 20 years when the EU, EU GDP is projected to be only about 10% of world GDP. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the bar for that would be an extremely high one, though, because in a previous professional life, I actually worked in marketing and advertising. And I do remember some of the concerns, I mean, firstly, around advertiser brand safety, and secondly, around compliance, where I think it would that sort of situation would make big advertisers like big brand advertisers kind of balk. If you lose big brand advertisers, it becomes a little bit more difficult, both from a revenue standpoint and from a product service standpoint, because you need to make sure that the ads you're serving to people who use your platform are actually quality and relevant. The bigger risk I see is that there will just be fewer opportunities for new services and new companies to do things in Europe itself, because the cost of compliance will be ones that large established firms can bear that smaller ones will find more difficult. And that, that I think is the bigger risk is that you see a lot of that activity just move out. I think as well, you can kind of see this, for instance, with what happened with Threads, where they didn't offer it in the EU at first. I think that if Threads were to become more successful and it was to become more established, Meta would eventually work out the compliance stuff and then offer a version of it in the EU. However, maybe it just wasn't worth their while when it was still relatively experimental and they wanted to see if this thing would succeed or fail to offer it in the EU. So it's not a good environment for like a sandbox, basically. Also, the market is so dynamic that the question is not so much what is Twitter going to do. The, the question is what are the services of the future? Where are they going to be located? Where are they going to be offered? And the idea for any regions in a, in a network world where people have access to any information from anywhere, you can use VPNs, even if they're blocked, it, like the Chinese, you know, physically block internet access to European, you can still circumvent it. Even the Russians are not circumventing VPNs. If people want to watch or want to listen to news from other countries, they can in Russia today. The EU is not going to imply more censorship to this than Russia. But I will struggle to see how a typically European approach can survive here. I think we should probably not now move on to, the, to our, our final subject, the grain deal, the expiry of the grain deal. Susanna, you wrote about it 
um, in the last few days. Tell us what are the consequences and what are a lot of, what are a lot of people missing when uh, when reporting the story. The Black Sea deal, um, which allowed actually cargo ships to go to Ukraine and uh, fetch um, the grains there and uh, transport it through the Black Sea through the channels, was struck between the UN, Turkey, and Russia and Ukraine last July. It was a major success at that time that allowed the grains that were piling up in Ukraine to find back into the world market. At that time, we had the fear of food insecurity in African countries, largely are dependent on Ukraine's grains. Egypt had 80% of its imports of wheat uh, coming from Ukraine. So all these things were just coming up in the fore. Um, prices were hiking like mad. So that was prevented when the deal was put into place. Now, it had been extended three times. Russia came back every time to the table, always a little bit of a, a demand for something to be tweaked or changed. But this time, it looks like they pulled out for good. They called back their inspectors from Turkey who were to inspect the ships, that there was no weapons on them before entering the passage towards Ukraine. They also had their conditions. They said, either you uh, you connect our agricultural bank back to the SWIFT uh, system or there is no deal. Later on, they opted up for another condition to have the one of the pipelines that go to Edessa for uh, the fertilizers to be reinstated before coming back to the deal. At the same time, they, they play with the fears. They attacked port infrastructures and uh, destroyed tons of wheat grains stored in two of the ports in Ukraine. And they also play with the fears in, in Africa in the sense that play, well, they say, well, you might not have the deal with Ukraine, but we can actually offer you a better deal. This is the messaging that they get out. We are still far away from seeing anything and, and factually. But at the moment, this is the kind of blackmailing thing coming on about. And it might well go ahead because last year when Foreign Minister Lavrov was uh, was visiting several of those countries, re-establishing some diplomatic uh, relationships, they also play well to the, the colonizers kind of theory. Oh, look, um, the, the, the deal fell through because the Western countries did not allow our grains or our wheat to have the same treatment as Ukraine. And the Ukrainian grains only went to the Western countries and not to the impoverished poor countries. So that's one of the arguments that has been peddled by the Kremlin again and, and by, by Russian commentators again and again. That's a narrative that works well in, in, in Africa. As for the EU, because they now took away that grain exports through the Black Sea, the pressure will be on the remaining uh, transit uh, routes through the EU, for example, the land route through the EU. And Poland and Hungary already came up and saying, well, no way this is going to happen over our borders. So we're going to impose unilaterally bans if the EU would not step up, uh, extend the restrictions we have on imports from the grains. So here we, we also see that pressures building up inside the EU that magnify the divisions inside the EU. In, in a moment where the EU actually tries to actually allow more grain exports to go via other routes and help Ukraine that way. Yeah, I mean, there, there are certainly like a lot of different moving parts to this entire thing. I, obviously, it doesn't seem like it's going to be quite as disruptive as this was when the invasion began, because as you said, everybody's had a chance to basically prepare for this. I don't really think there's a chance of Ukraine doing anything to like interdict Russian shipping, not because they can't do it, but because they wouldn't want. It would have diplomatic repercussions for them. And even though they kind of said that as far as they were concerned, it was open season on any Russian shipping in the Black Sea, I think that's ultimately an empty threat. 
their own allies would be very upset if they did anything to cause turmoil in any of the global commodities markets. It just basically kind of looked to me like Russia is starting to look with an eye forward to the possible, I don't know, ceasefire or armistice or peace with negotiations going ahead. And it just seems to me like the grain deal ending gave them another opportunity for leverage. You know, this this was something else that they could then put on the table. It's another thing that we can add to the various different things that we have going in our favor. I agree with you that, I mean, the black uh, piling up their blackmailings they have in order to chip it in later for solutions. I think also the moment was also significant in the sense that it was actually also to snuck a little bit um, receptorship at one after his re-elections because it had a U-turn on foreign policy as well. And he welcomed Ukraine as a potential NATO partner and released some of the prisoners uh, without informing Moscow to back to Ukraine, which really annoyed the Kremlin. And basically, there's also kind of a little bit of a tit for tat saying, well, you think you, you had a deal done and you, you got us to extend that deal, but that's not going to happen this time. We're not playing ball with your uh, geopolitical game. So th- that too played into the whole thing. It's not only what's going on with Ukraine, but it's Russia plays all these different uh, strategies uh, at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that Erdogan's not going to lose too much sleep over this, though. It's just one in a long series of um, little games that Russia and Turkey have been playing with each other for yeah, quite a they, while. They know, they know it very well. They, they've, they've been adversaries in many, many conflicts, and they know each oh, other. Libya, geez. Yeah. What is the what is the the impact of all of this on grain prices? Well, we had already um, a jump in in wheat prices, eight um, percent from Wednesday to Tuesday, uh, so which which is a big jump, um, and five percent for corn. There's been a year where we had this deal in place, and one of the advantages of that was that countries could prepare for and change their their import politics. For example, uh, Egypt, they stored up their facilities, and so now they have six months' worth of um, of wheat in, in their storages. They also diversified their suppliers, imports, wheat imports, uh, and now that looks much more diversified. Although the data, as I saw in Twitter, doesn't really seem to reflect that yet. At least we have some some knowledge from people there that suggests that this is no longer the same situation as it was a year ago, which seems plausible to 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 observers. How the markets react—that's a completely different matter. This is not necessarily that the only question whether they have diversified enough, but also the different pressures that come up on the market. Also, the droughts that we have—we've seen in Spain a lot of harvesting uh, was sort of falling through, and we don't know what these pressures add up also to the market. Yeah, a big a big one as well as India recently banning exports of non-basmati rice, yeah. which is going to put pressure on other prices of other global foodstuffs. This could be our next our next price shock. We have the energy price shock and the food price shock, and both both are subsiding, not completely, but they are subsiding. And if food price shock, if food price were to rise again, we are. And I'm not, I'm not saying this would just raise inflation by a lot, but it certainly would, it would make inflation stickier than it would otherwise be as it is coming down. Yeah, I, don't think I, think, I think we'll have to see, though, how the how the situation evolves. Like ultimately, markets and traders will react in the short term to geopolitical events. But the bigger test of whether this starts to bed in in the longer run is going to be if it actually has a tangible impact on supply or if um, uh, the countries involved are able to mitigate this effectively. 
I mean, the grains are still coming into the EU. The more trickier bit was that the, uh, the that the food is actually reaching um, other uh, countries in Africa and uh, in, in, in the Middle East from there through the land route. Um, that seemed to have not taken place in 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 the magnitude as it was predicted or expected. I think there again uh, there's something that could be worked through. I don't think in terms of uh, Europe, European markets, I think we are not the, the, the first call of emergencies. I think it's more really other countries in Africa where you actually could make the case that either we find a way of mitigating that shock or Russia comes in and, and, and does it for us. <laughs> so Yeah. Just uh, another point, which I think is interesting and not often made on what's going on with these Eastern European countries that have imposed these impose these import restrictions. I think thinking more broadly about the interaction between these things in domestic politics, it's very interesting how they have done this to placate one specific interest group that is not actually that big as a percentage of the population in any of these countries, despite the fact that high food inflation was having a much wider impact on a larger number of people. From a certain standpoint, Poland and Hungary not letting cereals imports in when they were dealing with like double-digit food price inflation seemed nuts. Why, why would you miss what seems like a golden opportunity to deal with one of uh, like a very serious price shock that could cost you politically? But it's a lesson in that sometimes even when you have a larger aggregate benefit, because the drawbacks fall very hard on a very small number of people and will motivate those people in a certain way. The politics moves in favor of that smaller group versus the larger, you know, kind of aggregate benefit. Hmm. Right. I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you for listening until next week.